Hi, and welcome to the Christian Fundamentals Foundations course. As we journey through these lessons together, my hope is that your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ will find meaningful expression and lead you on to maturity and fruitfulness in your walk with Him. I trust that this lesson will guide and encourage your heart. So folks, let us jump into our notes. You, you all have them, I'm assuming, in front of you. And really what we're going to be doing is working through them. As you have heard, the Foundations course is based on the six foundational doctrines as outlined in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Uh, those would basically be, in a nutshell, repentance, to, repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, eternal judgment and resurrection of the dead. Those are the foundational doctrines. And there's a lot of things to, to sort of bed down and understand in our hearts concerning all of them. But before we just jump into them, I thought a really good place for us to start was to lay a foundation, not just on Scripture or of Scripture, but understand that Scripture is the foundation upon which we build our lives as believers. And so really the purpose of this course, as you can see in point number one, is to create an immovable conviction that the Word of God is true and it's valid and it's relevant and it's reliable. Uh, really, the, the, the point of this is to say that if we are going to be teaching eternal truths and I'm going to base my eternal destiny and all my faith upon a book, upon what a book says, upon a Bible, upon the person of Jesus, it's good to have the solidity and the, and, and the, of that book encouraged and undergirded because the Bible is our final authority on all matters that pertain to life and godliness. So let's look at a few just interesting facts about the Bible. I mean, we all have, most of us, I'm sure, Bibles at home. Many of us have multiple Bibles at home. These days, our Bibles exist on our devices, and you can get just about every translation you want to. But when you start looking at how the Bible was put together, where it comes from, it is absolutely mind-blowing what an incredible book this is. It was written over a span of 1,500 years by over 50 different authors. And I've listed quite a few for you there. I mean, Moses, he was a prince, he was a shepherd, and he was a political leader. He, he occupied different offices and, and, and positions while he wrote it. Nehemiah wrote it as a cupbearer. Luke is a physician, John a fisherman. And so you've got a vast variety of people from different backgrounds that, that have come together to write this book or to put together the Holy Scriptures. Also, it was written in different times and at different places. Moses, while they were in the wilderness. David in times of war. Solomon in times of peace. And you can see, again, some different uh, examples there. The Bible was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. As you know, the Bible is comprised of two testaments, the Old Testament or covenant that God made with his people through Abraham and a new covenant uh, that God made with mankind through Jesus Christ. And it contains different kinds of books as well, not just different authors, but there are poetic books. There are um, prophetic books. There are books that, for example, the book of Acts, which tell the story of the early church and all the things that happened. There's the Gospels, the firsthand accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of these things, all of these authors, all of these writings fit together 
into one congruent narrative from start to finish. When you consider the prophecies and how they've come true, when you consider the things that are written of old and how Jesus fulfills them, the odds of that happening by chance are, are more than scientists can calculate. The Bible is an incredible, incredible book. And also it has stood the test of time despite tremendous opposition and persecution. In terms of books of antiquity, nothing comes close to the Bible in terms of the number of, of documents that are available uh, and the number of copies of manuscripts and scrolls. Nothing comes close. And scripture is just by far and away the greatest piece of literature that has ever been penned. H.L. Hastings says, if this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors, princes, and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book lives on. In a nutshell, your Bible is a collection of divinely inspired writings concerning God's dealings with mankind and with all of creation. From the very beginning, right through to where you are today. It's important to understand the Bible is not a scientific book. As I said, it contains poetry and parables and figures of speech and all kinds of things, but it's intended to unveil and point to God's redemptive plan for mankind through Jesus Christ, his son. So I want to move on to point number three now. And we're going to turn to the Bible. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, which is a very interesting verse in Scripture. And it says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the word of God is all, the whole thing together is divinely inspired by God. As he has breathed on people, as he has inspired people to write these things down, the book doesn't just come from a man's good idea or an ideology or a, you know, a social setting, but God is actively involved in the writing and the putting together of this book. And it is intended for our benefit. It says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this phrase, inspiration of God, comes from the compound Greek word. When we look at that, we break it down a little more. We actually gain a far deeper understanding of what it means. The, the Greek word is uh, theopnistos. You can, if there's any Greeks online right now, uh, Alexia, maybe you can help me. I think that's about right with my pronunciation, Theopneustos, and basically it's broken down to Theo, which is God, uh, Neo, which is to breathe, and this gives us this compound word to mean God breathed. In other words, God's breath, God's word. You know, in the Hebrew, breath is a very uh, emotive word, and it's very much tied with, with the Holy Spirit. And when, if you look at the next point, if you understand the Greek word for the spirit is pnevma, you also see how it's all related and you get a, a, a deeper understanding of what this verse that Paul writes is trying to communicate. It tells us that the Bible doesn't just contain the words of God, but that it is God authored, if you like, by the very breath of his spirit working through yielded vessels. This portion of scripture is saying that God has breathed it. He has inspired it. 
So when I read this, I need to understand that this is not just interesting accounts, but this is God speaking to me. Josh McDowell makes the following statement. Josh McDowell wrote a book called A Rebbe Defense. It's, it's a, quite a thick book, but really he's an apologist and he has given his life to, to defending the accuracy of the Bible, to, to defending the Christian faith on, you know, in various field, fields and spheres. And he says this about the Bible. He says, the process of inspiration extended to every word or all of Scripture, refuting the idea of myth and error. You see, since God is behind the writings and since he is perfect, the result must be infallible. If it were not infallible, we would be left with God-inspired error. It's important to understand this concept for the entire Christian faith. A little bit lower, you'll see Dr. John Beck. He says this. Some consider this to be a minor issue, but the idea that the Bible contains errors opens the door for serious spiritual danger. When people decide they have the authority to label one verse as a mistake, they soon find others that they consign to the error category. I've watched it happen over the years. Each generation rejects more and more of scripture as it gets in the way of their own opinions. So really, what's the point I'm trying to make here? The point is that our Bible even the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, even the stuff that's easy or that's great, is all written to reveal the person of Jesus Christ, to reveal the heart of God the Father, and it's all applicable to you and me today. Now, obviously, there are contexts, and we understand we've got Old and New Testaments, which, which have different ways about them that God deals with mankind, because Jesus changed everything. But when we understand the whole narrative and we put it together, we find our place in it, and Jesus finds his place in us. So in terms of personal application, the point I made there is that we are to live our lives according to the Bible. And if we are supposed to do that, we need to reach a place where we believe that it is true and that we trust it completely. And we determine in our hearts that it will be the final authority concerning every area of our lives. What am I saying in that? I'm saying that a disciple of Jesus Christ doesn't come with an agenda, but he comes with an open heart and acknowledges lordship. In other words, acknowledges that this is not just a good idea or a great opinion, but that God expects me to believe the word that he's given me and to conform and to change my life accordingly, to allow it to work in me, not just in a mental way, not just to understand things and, and know some things that happen, but to truly believe those things that have been said in the Bible so that they, they find a meaningful traction in my heart. It's very interesting when you read the Bible, how many times Jesus himself validates the scriptures. That's what I'm saying on the point number four. Jesus repeatedly validated the authority of the scriptures and he had great confidence in them. He knew them well. He often quoted them. Um, one of my favorite lines is Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. He often says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's really referring to there is the old scriptures that Jewish people were taught growing up as little children. They could recite them by heart. And he would say, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what he, what he does with that is he takes a principle that is contained in scripture and he makes it very deeply personal. For example, he says, you should, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, he who hates his brother has com already committed murder in his heart. In other words, there's already something deep inside. But this is what Jesus says about the scriptures. 
in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18, he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or, or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jots and tittles are little, little marks, little accentuating marks in, in um, uh, Hebrew writing. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it because the law in all that it is, is good. It, it reveals to us our state. But I'm going to fulfill it. In fact, Jesus Christ didn't just fulfill the law. In other words, he didn't just live up to the standards of it. But Jesus him, him, himself became that law. He became the representation of that in and of himself. That's why John calls Jesus the word of God made flesh. So if we look into our notes once again, Jesus Christ is the, is the word of God incarnate. That's quite an interesting thing because generally when we think of the Bible, we think of a book with black and white writing. And then we come to quite a peculiar scripture in the book of John, because John opens by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word there is capital, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ himself. And so it says that in the beginning, when creation was happening, Jesus was there. He was the word of God in the fullest sense there. And then we read on into verse 14 of the same chapter, and it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus himself became the representation or the manifestation of that word. He is the one to whom the word points. His all the old scriptures and all the old prophecies, he was the Messiah that was spoken of. And so many passages are written about him, especially if you go and read uh, Isaiah 53, for example, where it speaks specifically of what the Messiah will be like so that the people of Israel will recognize him when he came. And so we really get this idea that the word of God, our Bible, and, and, and all that it contains is not just a bunch of words on a page, but it's a living, breathing thing that it's, it's a person. You see, when I read this and I understand that, that my Bible is there to reveal to me the person of Jesus and that the words that I read inside here have the power to bring me revelation knowledge and to, to introduce me to him in a deep and a personal way, my heart attitude towards it changes. It's not just an intellectual thing that I look at. Uh, there's a commentary in a, in a Bible that I have. It's called the New Living Bible, and it says this. The word is Jesus Christ, the eternal, ultimate expression of God. In the Old Covenant, God spoke the word into existence. Well, sorry, spoke the world into existence. In the Gospel, God spoke his final word through the living word, his son. And I really love this portion of scripture from John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40 where Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he says, you are busy analyzing the scriptures, frantically pouring over them in hopes of gaining eternal life. Everything you read points to me. 
yet you still refuse to come to me so I can give you the life you are looking for, eternal life. So what is Jesus saying? He says, you know the scriptures, everything that's been given to you, but yet you're so blind, you can't, you, you can't recognize what's right in front of you. Folks, the reason we have a Bible, the reason God saw to it that this canon of scripture came together is so that we can not just hear the story, and, but so that we can have an encounter with the person of the word, Jesus Christ. You see, a book can touch your heart, but it cannot give you salvation. A book can move you, but it cannot change your life. The Bible is, in some sense, a book. But it contains the heart and the mind and the person of Jesus Christ, which has the power to bring life and to change us. He says, you, 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 look to, for, for, you look to the scriptures for eternal life. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me so that I can give you the life you are looking for. Eternal life. In, in, in all its many manifestations, not just in the life hereafter, but that we can live the life of God here and now and experience true forgiveness, experience the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercy of God and his kindness, the empowering and the comfort of the Holy Spirit as a living experience that we get to walk in day by day as he works in us and through us. So if that's what the word of God is or the Bible is, then it's quite important. Our response to that becomes even more poignant. You see, the message of the gospel demands a response. It almost demands a response. When God says that I loved you so much that I sent my only son to die for you, what will you do with him? There is no passive answer there. I'm either going to believe him and I'm going to believe and receive that wonderful gift or I'm going to reject him. But there is a response that is required. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that that person of Jesus, as we hear about him, he causes faith to rise up within us. He does something marvelous in our hearts that enables us to receive these words and believe them in such a way that, that we get to lay hold of eternal life. Faith refers to our ability to believe and appropriate the word of God we hear. And one of the most famous parables we're about to jump into it in, in scripture, I'm sure most of you would have heard it before, is the parable of the sower. And, and Jesus taught that his word is like a seed. Uh, many of you may have heard teachings along these lines that God doesn't give us fully grown trees. God gives us seeds. He gives us something that we plant in our hearts so that it can grow and it can manifest. Uh, most, some people have an incredible experience with Jesus. I, I'm often very jealous of, of the kind of person who one day was a sinner. They were in, involved in all kinds of things that they knew were wrong and they felt really guilty about. And the next moment, because Jesus has come into their life, they were they're immediately delivered. All kinds of things come off them. Their, their personality changes. There's such an incredible transformation. That's awesome testimony. My testimony is a little different. No less awesome, I think, because it's, it's my testimony. But my testimony has been one of growing slowly, slowly over years and years and years with the Lord. One seed here that grows, another seed there that grows. I'm certainly not the full, full article, but my God, thankfully, is fuller than it was when I first started with Jesus. 
So let's look into this parable that Jesus talks about, um, about what what the seed of his word is meant to do and how it's supposed to, co- how we cooperate with that seed, with the attitude of our hearts. I'm going to read Mark chapter 4. We're going to read right through from verse 1 to 20. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables, and he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears, let him hear. And that was the story. That was the parable that Jesus spoke about. And so, being very confused, uh, the, the, the disciples sort of came to him and said, but who, it says here, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that seeing they may not perceive, uh, see and, and not perceive. Sorry, so that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? So let's just pause there for a moment. Jesus is is making quite a statement about this parable and about this analogy. In other words, there's a principle here that is contained in this parable. And the principle is that what we do with the word of God that we receive determines the level to which we will be able to receive and assimilate the word of God. In other words, if my heart is hungry and I latch on to God's word and I, and I dutifully and joyfully obey it and apply it to my life, guess what's going to happen? More and more of God's word is going to become life and light to me. My experience in the faith is going to grow and more will be added. But if I, if I can't even do that with the little basics, what's going to happen? It's going to be like one of these other kinds of grounds. And so Jesus goes on to explain. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that is sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit some 30, 40, 60 and 100. So. 
just to break this down in a nutshell, Jesus talks about the kinds of soils and he says those by the wayside. What does he mean by the wayside? Hard ground. If you can imagine a field, the path would be the wayside. It's not really in the field, but it's, it's trodden ground. It's hard. And so the, it's speaking of people with a hard heart. They can receive the word, but it's, Satan comes away immediately and takes it. It doesn't get to even bear roots. It doesn't penetrate their hearts. And you have ones who have stony ground, who receive the word with gladness for a time, but only endure for a short bit. When the, when, when, and what it basically means is this. Those who have preconceived ideas, those who have a mindset who think this is how things work and that is how God is, and they receive certain things about the word. But as soon as those... The, the, the life of that word longs to send its roots down into their heart. It meets resistance. It meets areas of, of their hearts where they say, oh, no, if I do this, this is going to be too inconvenient for me or, or too costly for me, or I'm going to have to get rid of this idea. And so because of that, because of that, that hard, unyielding attitude, the word of God can't grow. It can't produce fruit. Next, we have the thorny ground. And I think for me, if I look at the age that we are currently living in, I think this this is such a an apt description of the age that we are currently living in in the, in the times, just the prevailing atmosphere around us. Those who hear the word of God, but they're so worried and anxious about the things that are going on around them, that those worries and anxieties sort of choke and kill the word of God. Um, and then they also have desires for other things. In other words, they want to believe the, the, the word of God, but they, they, the desire for money, the desire for riches, the desire for to have our own opinions appeased, that sort of thing. Going after other things. In other words, a divided heart. You see, God wants our hearts all for himself. And what happens is when our hearts are divided, in other words, not completely devoted to what the word of God says, other ideas will come in and will undermine and will cr cripple what it is that God is trying to do in our hearts. And so it won't grow. And so that's where we get to good ground. Good ground, Jesus says, is those who hear the word, they accept it with a meek heart, willing to yield, and they live it out, and then they enjoy the fruit of it. And I really like the analogy here, that the fruit is not sort of fivefold or tenfold that gets measured back. But there's an abundance here, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's the nature of Jesus Christ. He is an, a living God that produces life. And if our relationship with him is in, in, in right place, right standing, and if his word is, is, is valued in our hearts and treasured like a seed and we water it and we nurture it and we weed those beds, guess what's going to happen? It's going to grow and grow and grow and produce abundant fruit. Now, I'm... I'm have to make a confession. I'm very much of the impatient variety. Um, this has really come to the fore in lockdown. When lockdown began in about March, April of last year, we thought it would be a great fun project, my kids and I, to get into our garden and to plant some things and to see how they would grow. And so we planted pumpkins and we planted spring onions and we planted a whole bunch of different things to see how they would grow. And just about every day in the first month, we would go out and we'd check and we'd make sure we watered everything and, and we'd go look at how things are going and generally be quite disappointed because they're taking so long. After about two weeks, you know, you start seeing the shoots coming up. And, oh, we're going to have plants any day now. We're going to have fruit any day. It takes months. It took a really long time. 
Good news is the spring onions lasted. Nothing else did. Of all the things we planted, only the spring onions made it. And uh, my father-in-law was very grateful because he got loads and loads of spring onions. And we were very grateful that he loved them because there were way too many spring onions for us to all eat as a family. But the, the, it was just a beautiful analogy to me of what Jesus was trying to communicate through this parable. Those spring onions took care. I had to weed the patch. It had to be watered. The, it, it needed nurturing to a point. But God, in his own incredible way, made it grow. He made it grow. I didn't make it grow. He did. I didn't create the harvest. He did. I just took a very, very, very small seed and put it in the ground and created an environment that, that was fertile. And folks, that in simplicity is all that God wants or expects from you and I concerning his word. Little by little, seed by seed, to faithfully put it in the ground and water it. How do we water it? We pray over it. We meditate on it. We think about the things that God has said. We act on it. We obey the word that God speaks to us. We pray about it. We, in other words, we're giving ourselves to this word. And so really, as I've said there, in those next points there, the key point is that we should endeavor to ensure that our hearts are always open to the word of God and that we are quick to obey it. And also that we regularly weed our hearts from thoughts and mindsets that are contrary to the word of God and could choke its power in our lives. The wonderful blessing in all of this is, as I said, God helps us in this. In the same way that I just put the seed in the ground, God caused it to grow. So likewise, as I am faithful to put the seed of God's word in my heart, he is a way of working that inside me to cause it to grow and to cause it to produce fruit in my life. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. Should I say how? The word of God is powerful. I mean, if it's Jesus Christ himself, if we can have that analogy that my time in the word is like having fellowship with the person of Jesus, we understand that the greatness of the life that is in that is going to be working inside of us. Romans 1.16 says, Paul writes this, he says, I am not afraid or ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. Isn't that incredible? He, he, he understood that the word of God, this gospel message, is the very power of God to those who believe. It's an incredible thought. And the word of God has the power to produce living faith inside of us, saving faith to, to change who we are, that we can be born again. And we're going to look at that in some of our lessons coming up uh, in the next few weeks. The book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12, says this, that the word of God is living. And it's, in other words, it's alive. It's not a dead thing. It's living and powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does all of that piercing mean? It means that, that there are things in our lives sometimes that we don't know. Is this good or is this bad? Is this God or is this me or is this the enemy? And, and the word of God has the power to, 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 like a scalpel, to get right in there and reveal to us the true state of our hearts. You know, sometimes we pray things and we, we pray them thinking that, you know, we, we, we're pleasing God would want this. But the truth is that our motives are selfish. Or the truth is that our motives are self-gratifying. And the word of God has the power 
in an incredible way to bring correction and to get right deep down into our very fears, into our anxieties, into our hopes, to help us see who we are in the mirror of God's gospel, in the mirror of, of, of Jesus Christ. And the incredible thing that I've learned is this, that when God reveals my wretchedness to me, when he reveals my brokenness to me, he comes along with his healing balm. He comes along with his grace and he heals me and he lifts me up. You know, as believers, I think so often we forget the wonderful place that we have been given in Jesus Christ. You know, when we, in, in, there's an English coin of phrase that says, or turn of phrase that says, you know, I, I put him in his place. In other words, I reminded him of, you know, where he is in the picking order in the grand scheme of things. I put him in his place. I reminded him that I'm up here and he was down there. But it's amazing that when Jesus puts us in our place, he puts us right up where he is, seated at the right hand of God in glory. He puts us right there with him. And so this is the incredible wonder of the power of what the word of God can do. It comes into our lives and into our situations, and it, it, it helps us see us the truth for what it is. Not to deny it, but to deal with it so that we can come out into the truth and the reality of the eternal life that Jesus brings us into through the power of his word. As I've said, it's the word of God that reveals to us our true heart condition and imparts to us the nature of Christ by the power of his word. So our final point for tonight's lesson speaks about building our lives on the word of God. That's what this whole course is all about. It's to say I want to lay foundations in my life that God can build on. Pastor Andreas articulated it so beautifully. It's, it's to help prepare us for that which God has prepared for us, that we may walk in it and enjoy it. This is what Jesus says. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, it's important to notice in this parable that the storms of life hit all people. You know, Jesus doesn't promise us a rose garden. He doesn't promise, you know, promise us, you know, rainbows and sunshine every single day. Life is life. Jesus, in fact, said, in this world, you will have tribulations. But he didn't put a full stop there. He put a comma and said, but be of good cheer because I have overcome them. In other words, I will be with you. I will help you in and through this. Now, it's very interesting to see that the storm hit both builders' houses, but only the one who put into practice the word that he heard stood. The one who heard the word thought it was interesting, but didn't apply it to his own personal life. When the storms came and the winds blew, his life was, his, his whole house came tumbling down. And so basically the point of this is that hearing God's word is not enough. Just knowing about it, just hearing a good sermon, it must be mixed with faith and find expression and application in our lives. In fact, the evidence that the word of God has, or, or the evidence that it has been mixed with faith in our hearts is that it finds expression. <laughs> it finds manifestation. It finds application. And that's what James talks about in James chapter 1. Verses 22 to 25, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourself. It's a very interesting scripture. And it's very interesting that he doesn't just say, you know, it's not the devil that's going to deceive you and me. It's not the enemy. It's not a lie that's going to deceive you and me. But we will deceive ourselves if we hear the word of God and don't practice it. What does he mean by that? You know, it's a little bit like this. There's a difference between having a knowledge of something and having experiential knowledge of something. And very often we think a good example I've used recently is my five-year-old uh, who is convinced that she knows how to play the piano. And in some sense, she's right because she goes up to the piano, she sits behind it and she pushes all the keys and that is playing the piano technically, right? So she knows how to play the piano. But the rest of us don't think that she knows how to play the piano. She knows how to push keys down. She knows there's black ones and white ones, and she knows where the very top one is and the very bottom one is, because for some reason, those are the two most important ones for her. But she doesn't really know how to play the piano. She's deceived. She's still a child. But you know what? There's many adults that walk around like that. They've heard some scriptures. They've heard some things that the Bible say, but they don't live them out. They think that because they know about these principles, that these principles are actually at work and active working in their lives. But the truth is they're deceived. Let's carry on and listen to what the rest of the scripture says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and he's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in everything he does. Folks, God's desire is to bless you. What do I mean? I don't just mean to give you nice stuff. I mean to give you himself. That you may have life and have success in every sphere of life. To be blessed means to be empowered to prosper. And that, again, that doesn't just mean financially. That means I'm empowered to prosper in my battle against sin and temptation. I'm empowered to prosper in my relationships, in my marriage. I'm empowered to prosper in whatever it is that I give my hand to as I share the word of God, as I share the gospel, as I go about my daily business. I'm in, I am prospering because the very life and nature of Christ himself, as it's been planted in me, is beginning to manifest itself through me and produce fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of Christ, Christ-likeness, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. These are the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and they begin to manifest in my life. You know, it's a wonderful blessing to be some, around somebody who's kind and patient, isn't it? It's not the same to be around somebody who's short-tempered and harsh. It's different. And so really what Jesus is saying here is that as you receive my word, as you believe it, as you place your dependency and your life upon it and live it out, begin working it out, in time, abundant fruit, the life and nature of Jesus Christ will become evident to those around you. It's very interesting that the term Christian was not coined by the people who were of the way. In other words, the people who believed. But the term Christian was actually given to the group of believers to mean these are like little Christs. They look like him. They speak like him. They behave like him. 
So really, at the end of this first lesson, what is the personal application? What do we what, what is what do we leave with? What do we take into the week that we have ahead of us? Firstly, really, is that we position ourselves in this place of blessing by diligently studying and practicing the Word of God in our everyday lives. We do this by coming into fellowship and enjoying intimacy with Christ through the Word. So in other words, we get into it. We give ourselves to the reading of the Word. Now, for some people, that looks like a daily devotional. For other people, they like to systematically work through the books of the Bible. Other people, I mean, I had a, a season a little while ago where I just worked through the Psalms again. And I was so blessed in the psalmic language and the worship that came out of it. I know, Natasha, you and Christian and your Bible study, you are currently working through Proverbs and you're looking at the wisdom that's in there. Uh, Siobhan and Stephen and their Bible study are looking through the book of Matthew and they're journeying through the gospel of Matthew. Different people are in different places. This is so rich. But what it means is that I'm going to give myself to this word every day in a meaningful way so that I can get those seeds into my heart. It also means that I'm embracing his word and allowing it to change my thinking. So in other words, when I, I read something in the word, I don't just write it off and go, ah, you know, come on, this is a different time and place. No, I really try to understand the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Faithfully obey it, live it out as it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And you know what, what is an incredible way of growing in the word, growing in faith? It's by sharing it with those around us. One of the greatest catalysts for growth in the faith is to share what you have learned and how God has blessed you with other people. It will make it come alive in your heart even more. And also you're spreading the good news and you're sowing seeds of your own. You, you become like the one who sows those seeds as well. So folks, really in a nutshell, my hope and intention with the first night tonight, as I said, we haven't delved into those foundational doctrines. We're going to start there next week. But really, I wanted to just create a real confidence in your heart and a real, um, I hope, opening in your heart to a greater dimension of understanding the intimacy that Jesus longs to have with you as an individual and me through his word and the great truth that he longs to bring us into and to speak into our lives. What a precious gift we have in the Bible. What a precious gift that so many, have, as we started off, so many have tried to destroy, so many have, have tried to put away, uh, and because it gets in the way of their own glory and their own little empires, but yet it stands today, it stood the test of time, it's still as powerful and as sharp as it was the day that these words were spoken by God himself. And so I want to encourage you, let the word of God speak deeply into your heart, let the person of Jesus in, open your heart wide to him, because he will come and bring with him truth and, and redemption salvation and sanctification for your soul for your life that you may be fruitful and be blessed not just in this life but in the life that is to come in all eternity amen we hope that you've enjoyed this message for additional resources and more information come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za